the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, all aboard for Mars, except for the billionaire who sold the project, the Kaiser's troops marched through California, a remembrance of some heroic but ill-fated pioneers in the space program, and part 27 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with aerospace journalist Terry Burleson. Terry has written just a dynamite article for Bain.com on a relatively unknown launch pad accident in 1981 during the final countdown testing of the space shuttle Columbia on her maiden flight. Of course, the Columbia is the shuttle that exploded on descent back in 2002 in that terrible accident. But this launch pad incident claimed lives, brought out heroic effort, and left a tragedy in its wake that lasted for years. It's a piece of space program history that deserves remembrance and reflection. So that's coming up, and of course we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, Bayan Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. Hey, the September EARCs have been released to the wild, Laura. These creatures are genetically engineered replicas of pteranodons and pterodactyls, by the way. But they are controlled by neural implants by ground-based teams, so there's no chance of their attacking children or pets. Uh, hey, but don't pterodactyls have, like, really tiny dinosaur brains? It seems like there might not be much there to control. Hmm, we didn't think of that. Uh, fortunately, I made all that up. Can you explain what EARCs really are and why we love them, Laura? Sure. It stands for Electronic Advanced Reading Copy. And Advanced Reading Copy is what is sent to reviewers. And we send those out for free, but then we make them available for sale in electronic form for the fans who absolutely have to have the latest novel from their favorite writers as soon as it's fresh from the author's own pen full of typos and uh, everything else. So if you got to have it right now, we will sell it to you right now. Oh, yes, we will. So uh, newly available at BainEbooks.com are Mars Incorporated by Ben Bova. Uh, this is a really cool take. By the way, that, um, that one came in almost error-free. Ben really turns in clean manuscripts, so you'll get something really, really... Uh, Without typos very much. Anyway, um, this is really a, a cool take on Heinlein's The Man Who Sold the Moon. So we could have called it The Man Who Sold Mars? Yeah, something like that. Uh, the main character is a crusty entrepreneur who's uh, he's made his fortune, but he has a dream that's haunted him since he was a kid, like Harriman in The Man Who Sold the Moon, uh, to get humans to Mars. So his plan is very bold. He's going to challenge a group of very contentious, backstabbing billionaires to put a billion dollars a year um, into the project until the thing is is accomplished. Of course, these are people um, who are very contentious themselves, and there's all sorts of folks trying to sabotage the effort. Um, makes for a great story. Well, and since it's been Bova, I'm sure there's plenty of scientific background on how a Mars trip could actually be accomplished. Yeah, the guy used to be the uh, 
the president of the National Space Society, among other things. So, uh, and of course, the uh, the old editor of Omni, and and he was a analog editor as well. And of course, he's Ben Bover, the creator of the Grand Tour series as well. It's really a fun read. Also out is an alternate history from Robert Conroy. We've had a couple of World War II alternate histories from Bob Conroy, but this one has a really interesting premise. Uh, what if Germany won World War I and then turned her military attention to the U.S.? So this is about what happens after Germany's already won World War I and now is planning on assimilating uh, the U.S. Uh, would America get off its collective duff in time to counter the invasion? Well, that sounds very thought-provoking. Yeah. And there's lots of actions, and there's some cool ideas about how a World War I-style war in California might go. It's good stuff. And both of these are available at bandybooks.com, right? Yep, right now. So go to Mars and then fight the Kaiser's troops uh, months before everyone else gets to. Check them out. Here's a story most of us are familiar with. On the morning of February 1st, 2002, the world watched in horror as the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated while re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. What few people remember is that the crew of Columbia on that flight was not the first to lose their lives aboard the space shuttle Columbia. Nick Mullen, John Bjornstad, Forrest Cole, William Walford, Jimmy Harper, Robert Tucker, and Don Corbett. These are lesser-known names in the history of the U.S. space program. Perhaps they shouldn't be. Over the years, the technicians and engineers on the launch pad of Brave Dangerous as deadly as any faced in space, and some of them have paid just as high a price as the lost astronauts we rightly remember and honor. On March 19, 1981, during the final countdown demonstration test, the last major milestone before the Columbia was launched on her maiden voyage, seven men were killed or injured within the confines of the Columbia's aft compartments. These men were launch pad technicians and safety officers whose responsibility was to maintain and inspect Columbia, which was very much an experimental system in order to see her off to space. We have with us Terry Burleson, author of an exciting, moving, and ultimately heartrending article on the terrible accident of March 1981. The article is called Columbia's First Victims, and it appears on the Bain.com main page during the month of September 2013. Afterward, it will become part of our 2013 free nonfiction anthology, which is available at BainEbooks.com. Also with us today is Hank Davis, Bain Editor Emeritus. Hi, Hank. Hi. Terry Burleson is an independent aerospace reporter and science writer. His work has appeared in numerous places, including Air and Space Smithsonian, where his article, But That's Why You Fly, was recently included in the Air and Space Smithsonian's Collector's Edition. We recently ran another piece by Terry that includes some very cool material about the early years of the shuttle program and the ancient, resilient mission control computer that helped the control room direct the show. That article is called R.I.P. M.O.C. Is it Mock or is it M.O.C., Terry? Uh, we always called it Mock. You always called it Mock. And it can be found in the 2013 nonfiction anthology at Bainey Books right now. Incidentally, that article has an interesting reminiscence from Terry about how he crashed the mission control computer when he first started working at NASA as a wet-behind-the-ears mission control officer. Terry graduated from Purdue University with a degree in aeronautical and astronautical engineering. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, Terry. As mentioned, he worked as trajectory officer in NASA's Johnson Space Center for the first space shuttle missions. 
He also worked at Boeing for many years and as a private aerospace consultant to commercial space ventures. Terry, uh, the countdown demonstration test of March 19, 1981, can you paint a picture for us of what this was and, and what led up to it? You bet. The uh, CDDT was, as you mentioned, the last major milestone before the launch, which was scheduled just two or three weeks later. This was a test of the countdown procedures from beginning to end all the way up to the point of main engine ignition. Uh, This is a test where the crew was in the orbiter doing all of their procedures as well. This was called a dry test because the main tank was not fueled with its liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, so it was considered to be a safe test. Now, to understand the events that happened after this, it's important to realize the attitude that was prevalent in NASA at this time. We were about two years behind schedule in flying this orbiter, and there was tremendous pressure on us to get the bird launched. Uh, 79 and 80 were very demoralizing years in a lot of ways. Tiles were falling off the orbiter. The main engine uh, had recently, or a few months earlier, had blown up uh, on the test stand during a test. And so over 1980, we worked extremely hard, long hours to try to overcome these problems. And by God, they did. They got all of those problems fixed. And by the time 1981 dawned, we were really excited to get this vehicle launched. In fact, they gave all of us these little cardboard placards, I still have mine, that says, launch fever, catch it. Well, you know, fevers aren't always a good thing to catch, and that turned out to be the case for the CDDT. So you were a trajectory officer during this time. Right. While this was going on. So there, was, uh, there wasn't any fuel in the shuttle tanks. Um, there, was a, there was a firing of the, of the engines on the launch pad prior to the final countdown test, was there not, with, with fuel in the... Correct. About three weeks before the CDDT, there was something called the flight readiness firing, or the FRF. This was a similar test, and it was a test of the entire countdown procedures. Uh, there were a couple of main differences. The crew was not on board for this because it was considered a hazardous test. And in this case, they actually fired the three main engines and burned them for about 20 seconds to make sure that they all play together nicely down at the aft end of the orbiter. But the vehicle is bolted to the pad. The solid rocket boosters on each side don't fire, so we don't actually launch the vehicle, which is kind of a bad thing to do if there's no one on board. Mm. Um, but it was a test to make sure the engines would fire and work properly. Now, uh, after you fueled the orbiter, there's always a danger of uh, liquid hydrogen or gaseous hydrogen and oxygen leaking into some of the compartments of the orbiter that are open to the atmosphere. The tank, these are super cool propellants, but as they heat up, they vaporize and pressurize the tank. So you have to vent them overboard to keep the tank from rupturing. Also, when you actually ignite the engines like they did for the FRF, uh, just before ignition, thousands of pounds of these propellants gush through the engine bells, and that hydrogen and oxygen evaporates, and if the orbiter doesn't launch, these gases can accumulate in these areas uh, in the orbiter that are open. And, of course, hydrogen is highly flammable, and oxygen makes everything around it flammable. So you want to keep these gases as well as some of the other nasty stuff that's on the orbiter, like hydrazine and ammonia, things like that, from accumulating. So they flow gases nitrogen through all these compartments to keep this stuff from building up because nitrogen is, is normally harmless and inert. You and I are breathing 80% of each of our breaths is nitrogen. And so uh, for the CDDT, even though it wasn't fueled, they decided uh, to not only do the 
the nitrogen purge, but to extend it because back on the FRF, they thought they detected a nitrogen leak of some kind, that some nitrogen was getting into areas of orbit or it wasn't supposed to. So for the CDDP, they wanted to extend this nitrogen purge for an hour or two to give test controllers time to try to identify if there was a leak and if that was going to be a problem or not. So the reason that they're using nitrogen is that it, it, it won't, it, it's inert, as you say, it's an inert gas, and it, it won't uh, blow up, and it clears out the gases that, will, that might cause problems, such as the hydrogen and oxygen. Right, and That's then after cool. you do the nitrogen purge, you then purge it with breathable air so that people yeah. can go back into the orbiter to work. What happened was that the, uh, the nitrogen is uh, flowing through these compartments within the shuttle. Is Correct. That, and um, their aft compartments toward the back of the, the shuttle, um, or at least the ones we're concerned with, clearly these things are big enough for a, a couple of grown men to get inside. Can you describe these compartments and what's inside them? I've never actually been in one, but uh, and, and sadly the pictures from the accident don't really do it justice, but there are other pictures out there. There, um, there is a small hatchway that you, people crawl through, and of course it's a space vehicle. You want to make it as uh, small and compact as possible, so there's not room to stand up. There's room for people to crawl around. There's um, platforms for people to crawl back to the spaces they need to get into. And in this particular compartment, it's just in front of the engine, so you have these big, massive pipes running through it that, draw, that uh, pull the propellants from the uh, external tank into the engines where they're burned. So, And then there's support structures and things. It, it really looks a lot like the crawl space under my house with the big HVAC pipes and everything. It's an area you can crawl around in on your hands and knees or on your belly, but it's not a place I like to go into more than I, than I need to, and it's certainly not a place where anyone is claustrophobic. Yeah. But it's it's large enough so that somebody could crawl in there and then not be seen, if they. Correct. They have yeah. these um, they have these platforms for the workers to crawl in, but then you can crawl off those platforms to move down into the little cubby holes, the little nooks and crannies where these guys actually have to do their work if they can't do it from from the platform itself. Now during the uh, the the CDDT the. The metal covering of one of these access ways was taken off, and there was a curtain put on. Can you explain how that worked? Or? Yeah, well, this is door 50-1 at the back of the orbiter, and I don't know the exact rationale for it, but I could speculate that typically this is a space vehicle, so the doors and hatches, um, they're not like the doors and hatches on your car. They don't open and close and latch that easily. So probably just for convenience, the hatch was left off, but they put this heavy curtain in front of it. I would speculate to keep debris and objects from falling into the orbiter, you know, birds and chipmunks from sneaking in and nesting and things like that. So you can push the curtain aside to get in here during the CDDT, the final uh, countdown test. Yeah, so provides easy access and without leaving it completely open to the elements. And it it will keep... Uh, gas inside. Yes, yeah. unfortunately, it would also do that. So let's let's get into the the nitty gritty of the launch technical procedures for a minute, so we can understand this. There were two. All right, so the there was this nitrogen purge that they wanted to extend to, to make sure there wasn't a nitrogen leak or to, to locate it if there was. Um, and there's two procedure sets on these procedures, and and they had a a lot of deviations, right? Like 500 deviations. That's right. From standard. Now, you've explained that they were worrying about this nitrogen leak. One, one set of procedures was for the launch pad techs, and the other was for the mission control officers. Um, how did the, somewhere along the line, these two sets of deviations didn't match up. 
how did this happen? Can you explain? Um, yes. The, after the countdown demonstration, or I'm sorry, the flight readiness firing, the, it, the, the FRF seemed to go perfectly well from our point of view. The, from the big overview uh, observation, it went perfectly. But there were a lot of little things, little problems, little issues that arose that test conductors wanted to either change or investigate further, like this nitrogen, possible nitrogen leak. And these were called deviations. And there were over 500 of them identified after the flight readiness firing. And there was only three weeks between then and the countdown demonstration test. This gets to this uh, compressed schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to, to get to launch as quickly but safely as we can. Now, when these deviations were signed off on by all the different test groups, there was a checkbox that said, is this a hazardous deviation or not? And if it was tagged as hazardous, it went through a much more critical and thorough review by different groups. The safety review board would look at it and other configuration boards and review boards, and they would be absolutely verified that the test is safe, that you know all your T's are crossed and I's are dotted, as they say. Now, whoever, now I don't know if this was a person or a committee, but whoever uh, had decided to do this extended purge did not check that box as hazardous. I mean, it's, it's nitrogen. Like I said, we're breathing it right now. Compared to, you know, hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide and some of the other really nasty things on the orbiter, it was not considered a hazardous gas or a hazardous procedure, so that box did not get checked. Consequently, it did not go through the same critical review that ideally it should have. So as a consequence, what you had was the test conductors at the Launch Control Center, and, and I want to pull a little quibble here. Uh, it's not mission control. That wasn't us. <laughs> We're yeah. back in Houston. This is the launch control people out at the Cape. They're about three miles from the pad. Uh, those guys are the ones that ordered the test and were conducting the test, and they had the correct timeline procedure, or at least the updated timeline procedure in front of them. Out at the pad, however, there was this separation of authority, I guess you would say, between the launch control center and the pad workers, because the pad workers wanted to have a certain level of autonomy. They didn't want to have to go to launch control every time they needed to tighten a bolt or polish a railing and say, can we do this, and have them send it up and send it back while they sat around waiting. So they had a certain amount of autonomy to do the tasks they needed without checking with mission, or with, I almost did it myself, without uh, checking with launch control and the, and the firing room test conductors. So they had their own set of timelines. And somewhere along the line, and it's still not clear to me where this got dropped, but the timeline for the test conductors was changed to show the longer purge. The timeline at the pad was not. So they were not aware that this purge was being extended. And because this didn't go through the safety reviews that it ideally should have, uh, that disconnect was never caught. Mm -hmm. So we have, at this point, we have these technicians on the launch pad itself, entering the aft compartment, not knowing they're stepping into a potentially deadly situation. Um, one more matter of the setup uh, of what was about to happen. Can you give an idea of what breathing a pure nitrogen, uh, what breathing pure nitrogen does to the human body? I mean, it, yes, the atmosphere is mostly made of uh, nitrogen, but not all of it. <laughs> what, um, what is hypoxia, for instance? Well, when we breathe, you know, the, the air that we're breathing right now, which is almost 80% nitrogen and roughly 20% oxygen, that oxygen that we inhale causes a, a release of carbon dioxide into our lungs. And it's that buildup of carbon dioxide that makes us feel like we're 
we're suffocating this gasping need to breathe. If you hold your breath, that need to breathe comes from the buildup of CO2 in your lungs. And if you don't exhale it, you're going to feel like you're suffocating. Uh, so there's sort of a body sensor that tells that, that senses carbon dioxide levels that makes us have that feeling of, of we need to breathe. Exactly. And if that carbon dioxide is not there... Yeah, there's, there's not... There, exactly. So when you're breathing pure nitrogen... It's odorless, it's colorless, you have no idea that you're not breathing regular air. And since you're not ingesting or breathing oxygen, there is no release of CO2 into your lungs. So you don't get that breathlessness feeling. So you don't realize that you're not getting oxygen. You breathe two or three breaths, and in a matter of seconds, you get lightheaded, woozy, and then pass out. And it's it's asphyxiation, they call it hypoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain, and you lose consciousness in seconds, and you lose your life within minutes. All right, so these men were potentially stepping into a pure nitrogen um, environment. Who were these guys, and what was the timeline of what happened? Um, Let's let's get into the, the actual incident. After deviation 1320, I believe it's labeled. At 9 o'clock, the CDDT had ended. The crew had left the vehicle, and the guys at the pad were looking at their timeline and going through the procedures. And at around 9 o'clock that morning, they gave the pad clear announcement, which, according to the timeline they had, everything was now safe to go and work on the orbiter. So they released the workers to go back to their workstations. Around 9.15... Uh, the first three workers involved in this incident, John Bjornstad, Forrest Cole, and Bill Wolford, reached their workstations. Now, there's this big, giant structure called the rotating service structure that's uh, attached to the pad that rotates over and basically covers the orbiter. It's a giant uh, network of, of catwalks and railings and electrical connections and everything that enables the workers to go up to the vehicle and access it and work on it. And at this uh, particular spot for the door 50-1, these three workers signed in at 9.15, walked across the access arm to the orbiter, crawled through the curtain that we've discussed, and entered the vehicle. The first one in was John Bjornstad. He crawled through the opening on his hands and knees, worked his way to the right, back deeper into the compartment. Behind him, Forrest Cole followed. He crawled off to the left and crawled underneath some structure and into his little cubby hole back there where his workstation was. Right behind them came Bill Wolford, who followed John Bjornstad. As uh, Sue Wolford, his wife, said to me, he was basically face to butt with uh, his friend John as they worked their way back. And suddenly John collapsed. And Bill obviously had no idea there was anything wrong with the air. He thought John had had a heart attack. And so he shook him and said, John, are you okay? And reached out to try to, to grab him and, and pull him out when he found himself getting lightheaded and dizzy, and then he collapsed as well. So um, was Bill Walford inside the compartment entirely at this point? Yes, he was. All right, so there were three men collapsed in the compartment from uh, from breathing pure nitrogen that they didn't know was there. Correct. Uh, now, outside of the platform, there's a little the, – the access platform looks like uh, you have to step down to get onto it. Uh, they had to climb down a short ladder. What was, the, what was directly outside of this, uh, this access hatch? Well, right outside the hatch was a very small little uh, metal grate that looks 
from the drawings, the pictures to be not much bigger than the, the floor of a phone booth, maybe three feet by four feet, something like that. Just room enough, really, for one person at a time to stand or, or squat down as they're crawling into the orbiter. Then there's a little spot right behind that for an, the next person who's waiting. And then there's this four-foot ladder, and this was cited in the accident report. And I'm not sure what the rationale behind this design was, but as you're walking across from the rotating service structure where everyone signs in, where all the safety equipment and everything else is, to the orbiter, you walk across this metal catwalk, essentially, a metal grate uh, access ramp, and then you're four feet above the door that, that gets into the orbiter. So there's this four-foot ladder that they fold down and climb down to this tiny little access platform that we're talking about. So to go into or out of that workstation, you have to ascend or descend this four-foot ladder to get back to the rotating surface structure. Well, I'd mentioned that Terry uh, has provided a very clear diagram taken from the accident report in his article at Bain.com, which is a really good reason to go and read the article itself. There's all sorts of uh, additional details you can get there and, and some really great uh, graphics and illustrations. Uh, so we have John Bjornstad and Forrest Cole unconscious in the in the compartment. William Wolford, uh, Bill Wolford, collapsed on top of John Bjornstad. So what happened next? Well, behind them came uh, an inspector named Jimmy Harper. He signed in about uh, five minutes after the others, and he made his way across the same access ramp that the others did. And as he approaches, he and sees these men collapsed inside. So he crawls into the compartment and tries to help Bill Wolford get out. Wolford uh, briefly regains consciousness, reaches out to him, and as uh, Harper is reaching to try to grab his hand and pull him out, he too gets dizzy and is overcome, and he collapses as well. Now, he was only halfway in the compartment at this time, so what perhaps saved him was that when he passed out, he collapsed backwards through the curtain back outside onto the platform. It's just, it's just amazing to me that um, just that it, it wasn't that much exposure to the, uh, to the nitrogen atmosphere, and, and they passed out. And, you know, these were not unusual men in any way. That, I mean, it, it's just amazing to me that it, that it happened so quickly. Yeah, they say that two or three breaths is all it takes, and within 30 or 40 seconds you lose consciousness. Wow. So Jimmy Harper is collapsed outside the compartment. Now, uh, people outside now can see that somebody's collapsed. People uh, and they can tell something is wrong if they see Harper lying there. Uh, and three other men show up. What, what happens then? Okay, uh, just behind Harper was a guy named Nick Mullen, um, uh, Bill Corbett, and a man named uh, Tucker. And these guys signed in at their positions and made their way across. Uh, Nick Mullen was first, and just as he arrived, he saw uh, Harper collapse and fall outside onto the platform. So he, he rushes up, uh, grabs Harper, and pulls him out to safety. Now here, Nick faced a choice. He could have run back to the rotating service structure, found some breathing gear, and come back to assure his own safety, and come back then to help the men, but clearly recognized that something was awful, was horribly wrong, and these people had maybe only moments to live. So rather than do that, he entered the compartment himself, took a deep breath of air, he said, before he went in, uh, grabbed uh, Bill Wolford and maneuvered him, pushed, pulled, and got him single-handedly back out onto the access platform, took another breath of air, called for help, and went back inside uh, to try to help John Bjornstad. Uh, 
Corbett had arrived this time, and he saw what was going on, rushed inside to, to assist Mullen, and he grabbed Bjornstad by the ankles, and Nick Mullen worked his way back deeper into this compartment, holding his breath, tried to get under his friend John Bjornstad's shoulders to sort of help push him out while Corbett was pulling him. And between the two of them, they managed to lever Bjornstad out, back out onto the platform. But somewhere in there, uh, Mullen must have run out of air, again, that sense of needing to breathe, and, and had taken some breaths of the nitrogen. And by the time they got to back out to the platform, he collapsed and fell unconscious onto the platform himself. My goodness. So Nick uh, Nick Mullen ultimately saved the life of Bill Walford and, and possibly even pulling Jimmy Harper out as well, correct? Is that true? Uh, and nobody is aware at this point that Forrest Cole is in there still. Correct. He was off to the left and under some of the structure, and no one had seen him. So now people on the ground and in, and in uh, launch control know something's wrong. How long have these guys been in the compartment? At this point, it's been about seven minutes. That, uh, that these guys have been trapped in there. Yeah. So what happened next? Well, at this point, the alarm went out. Uh, Harper had recovered consciousness. He made his way back to the uh, service structure. Uh, Tucker had seen him and found out what happened. Tucker put on some breathing gear and rushed up to help. He helped, pull, uh, helped Mr. Corbett pull uh, uh, both Harper and Mullen you know, up onto the service platform to safety and Bjornstad's body. He's still alive at the time, though he's unconscious. And then he pulled the curtain aside and peered around in this dimly lit, crowded compartment to see if there was anyone else in there. But he's breathing hard from the exertion of, of this and the, the probably just the fear and excitement of what's going on. And his visor began to fog up. So as he's looking around inside in the dim light, he doesn't see Forrest Cole's body still wedged sort of underneath some of the equipment to the left, so he comes back out to assist the people that they have pulled out to safety so far. Uh, the alarm had been rung by this time. All over the pad, uh, rescue workers are, are being scrambled. Back at the launch control center, the test conductor doing the nitrogen purge has guessed at this point what has happened, and he put a call out over his communication loop to his supervisor, should I uh, begin the air purge and, and stop the nitrogen purge? And he waits for about a minute and doesn't get a response. I'm not sure what happened there, if his uh, supervisor was frantically, you know, trying to figure out what was going on or was or what. But So this conductor decided to take it on on his own to go ahead and start the air purge anyway. So he initiated that, but it took about 90 seconds from pushing the button for all the valves to open and close and for air to even begin flowing into this compartment. So there was, um, I mean, there was a great deal of human uh, oversight and interaction here, but it just wasn't fast enough, is what it seems like. Well, in, in this case, literally seconds counted. Seconds can make the difference between living and dying and between the confusion and the, the basic configuration of where the emergency equipment was and the difficulty in getting to the, to the orbiter and then the small confines of working. It, it was just, uh, it just had to be a nightmare. So tell us, tell us the rest about the incident and, and the outcome. It was not good for John Bjornstead and Forrest Cole, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, at this point, it's around 9.23 now, about eight minutes have elapsed, and one of the fire chiefs that was stationed there at the pad has responded. He heard the calls, responded to the emergency, wearing complete breathing apparatus. He helps 
um, Corbett and Tucker pull these men free and then goes into the compartment to make sure everyone is out, and he's the one that sees Forrest Cole still trapped there. So he crawls back and is trying to pull this unconscious adult man out of this small compartment and is unable to do so. Uh, another fire chief or fireman arrives who also has breathing gear, and so he enters as well, and between the two of them, they're finally able to pull uh, Forrest Cole free. But by this time, it's 9.28, and Forrest Cole has spent some 12 or 13 minutes uh, trapped inside that compartment. And he and John Bjornstad at this point are both unconscious. Nick Mullen had regained consciousness at this time. He said that he, in an interview at the time, he said that he was, you know, one moment he was trying to push his friend Bjornstad out onto the platform. The next thing he woke up, he was back on the service structure with people gathered around him, giving him oxygen. Now, there's a lot more in your article about the emergency response and such, but um, and it's very it's fascinating in itself. Uh, all right, so wait, Bill Walford survived, as did Nick Mullen and Jimmy Harper, all people who were exposed, or at least they survived that day. Um, and, and then a really heartbreaking st- story uh, begins to happen. Can you tell us what happened to Nick Mullen and William and Bill Walford in the years after the accident? Yes, and this was something that really caught me off guard in writing the article was the depth of this tragedy. Uh, I've lost close family members myself, and I know that when you lose someone close, it's a tragedy for the entire family, and it's a tragedy that resounds through the decades for the rest of your life. But what I did not expect was that this tragedy is still ongoing, even today. When I contacted Sue Wolford, uh, I identified myself, told her that... um, I was writing an article about this accident that happened back in 1981. And the first thing she said to me then was, you mean the accident that's the reason my husband is lying on his back and they're in extreme back pain? And I said, "Uh, I guess so. Tell me about it. And she said that she rushed to the hospital to see her husband, and he was brought in on a gurney, bleeding from the nose, bleeding from the ears, unconscious, red splotches all over his skin, and she thought he was dead at first, but they revived him, and he was released in a few days. But he immediately started suffering from excruciating migraine headaches. Now, my wife gets these every you know, couple of weeks or a couple of days, and I see how debilitating it is. But Bill suffered from these 24-7 for three and a half years after the accident. And when they finally subsided, he realized that he was also suffering from extreme back pain, but it had been masked by the agony of the migraines. So they took him in to find out what happened, and when he was younger, uh, Bill had had back surgery and had pins inserted in his back. As they were some point in the rescue operations, either trying to pull him out of the compartment or drop him onto the access ramp, or maybe they dropped him getting onto a gurney or dragging his body, they dislodged these pins. And he was not aware of it because of the, the pain from the migraines, and they had rehealed in the wrong places in his back, and they could not even be surgically corrected at this point. So ever since then, he has suffered from this excruciating back pain. Additionally, apparently, he began losing his hearing after the accident, and even though Sue said there's no way you can prove that that came from the accident, she's absolutely convinced that it did. The Nick Mullen story is... Even worse than this. Well, let's uh, let's let's hold off on that for a moment. Um, can you tell us the uh, 
the outcome of the investigation of the accident? What were the main findings? There were a couple of major investigations. The, uh, one was done by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and they found that Rockwell was and Wackenhut Security, the people involved uh, at, in keeping the pad safe, had failed in their duties. That they did not have proper emergency equipment. It was not properly positioned for rapid access, and that was a major contributing factor to this tragedy. So they found uh, them guilty and fined Rockwell $420 for not having the proper emergency gear at hand. And they said they didn't fine NASA because they said that would be essentially the government paying itself. I don't know. That's apparently some government mentality at work there. I don't know quite how that works. Uh, There was also, of course, a NASA investigation. And NASA tore this apart looking for everything that happened, published a almost 500-page document about it, and discovered that, yes, there was a, a whole series of breakdowns in, in what happened here in the communication, the delegation of authority, et cetera, and they put in place a lot of procedures to be sure that this doesn't happen again. So the – and afterwards, there were suits uh, filed and, uh, and some money – Awarded the paper bush, the, the paper pushers don't come off very well in this story, and and I say that speaking as a paper pusher myself. Uh, the families of these men were were treated, it seems, to an outside observer such as me, uh, pretty indifferently by NASA and Rockwell. Um, and the settlements with the victims and their families had to had to be reached in the courts instead of. Uh, why was there not a process in place for looking after families in the event of an accident? Why do these things have to go to court? No, there was nothing like that. Essentially, the workers are considered part of as any industrial worker. They get workers' compensation if they get injured on the job, etc. And and this speaks to uh, what I consider kind of a Jekyll Hyde mentality at NASA. The Jekyll part of NASA is that when an accident has happened, and there have been a few over the years, NASA will will leave no stone, no pebble, nothing unturned in their obsession with finding out what happened down to the nth degree and then correcting that to see that it damn well never happens again. But there's also this sort of Mr. Hyde element where NASA, after doing that, kind of seems to say, yeah, but, you know, it's not really our fault. You know, it's a dangerous job, it's a dangerous business, and and maybe it's just part of the NASA's process of looking forward rather than backward that they really don't want to seem like take responsibility when responsibility is due. For example, when Sue Wolford got the call, she was at work as an elementary school teacher, and they told her her husband had been involved in this accident. She said, I'm coming out to the pad. And they said, no, you're not allowed at the pad. The pad's closed. Go home. We will call you, and you can come see your your husband at the hospital. Uh, Denise Mullen uh, told me the same story. When Sue arrived at the hospital, she saw a NASA, big NASA security guy walking in behind a gurney. So she ran over to him to ask him if he was, knew what was going on, and that's when she saw this man lying on the gurney with the blood and the splotches and realized this was her husband. She asked the security guy, he said, I can't tell you anything about what happened. And she discovered that he wasn't there to keep people away from, from her husband. He was there to keep her away from the media, that his job was to see to it that she did not talk to anybody. That's, and Denise Mullen yeah. told me the same story, that they were both instructed by NASA to stay quiet, don't talk to anyone about this, and we will be in touch with you later. 
Sue Wolford told me that to this day, no one from Rockwell, NASA, anyone has ever talked to her about it. No one, there was, she said that they felt like refugees. There was no counseling, no, much less any kind of financial help, nothing at all that NASA was obsessed with finding the cause, fixing it, launching the vehicle, and moving forward, and there was nothing in place to help the families. My goodness. Um, I would mention that you did request comment from Boeing uh, on, on this article, which, uh, which is who owns Rockwell now uh, on the matter, uh, and you didn't get any response. Uh, there was no reply. We gave, you gave them plenty of time. That's correct. Uh, wh- how about NASA? Uh, well, I didn't expect a response from Boeing. I mean, Rockwell ceased to exist as a corporate entity in 96, and Boeing, I'm sure their attitude is, hey, that, that was them, not us. NASA, it's, it's really difficult to navigate the bureaucracy at NASA. I was never actually able to even find the right person or place to call to try to get a comment because Kennedy Space Center... Uh, is responsible generally for things at the pad, but the man flight is overseen through Houston at Johnson Space Center, and it's all overseen by NASA headquarters. So, frankly, I was never able really to identify even who I should be asking in order to try to get a comment from. And, frankly, I would be highly surprised if there was any comment forthcoming 30-some years later. Yeah, I mean, it sounds rather Kafkaesque. Um, at least on the uh, on the bureaucracy side of things. So let's let's talk about Nick Mullen now. He was probably the most heartbreaking of of these guys um, of the stories of that day. As you mentioned, he was a changed man, and and really not for the better. Uh, he lived uh, many years after this. Can you tell us uh, fill us in on the rest of this sal- sad outcome? Yes, this was the worst part of the whole uh, story for me. Uh, Nick, you know, rushed in to save these people. And he was a, a young, healthy, 25-year-old man with two children at the time. He was taken to the hospital, released after a couple of days. But the hypoxia, of course, can cause brain damage because the brain is starved of oxygen. And he suffered from personality changes, uh, personality disorders, really, going forward from there. His wife tells me uh, that she would wake up at night and he would be gone. He would no longer be in their bed and she would have to look around and find him and she would find him hiding someplace, uh, sometimes weeping, having terrible nightmares. He suffered from incredible survivor's guilt that his friends had died and that he had not. He began to lose his memory. Um, I talked to his attorneys and they told me uh, the most heartbreaking story for them was that Nick at the time when they were representing him would be driving home and forget where he lived and would have to find some place to pull over and find someone to help him to call his wife and have her come and guide him home. And they said, imagine that you're 25 years old and and you realize that you knew these things, you remembered these things, but that your brain has been damaged and you will never be the same again. Nick, one time, his wife said she got a call from Washington, D.C., Nick had disappeared, and he had fled there and was living with homeless men because he felt that that was what he deserved in life. In addition to that, what I found really surprising was the, and this was true for Bill Wolford too with his migraines, was the physical ailments that came from this, that Nick, in, in Nick's case, he suffered from severe breathing disorders for the rest of his life, and these disorders were degenerative. He began developing nodules on his lungs. He got weaker as he got older to the point where he was almost not ambulatory. He had to have oxygen 
tanks with him just to, to take another breath. And he grew weaker and weaker for the next 14 years until finally in 1995 he passed away from those injuries. God, he was um, he was a young man even then. Yes, 39. Yeah, and you know we mentioned there was a settlement, uh, but they, they didn't get much money out of this. Uh, no, they didn't. Um, the, I when talking to the attorneys, I mentioned something about the trial or the court, and and he said, "Oh, this never went to trial." He said, "This was never going to go to trial. If it had gone to trial, you know, NASA and and Rockwell and all the people involved would have uh, just been eviscerated." So. They spent the entire two years negotiating a settlement, and he said it was a case of Rockwell saying, hey, this wasn't our fault. This is NASA's fault. They didn't give us the right procedures. And NASA saying, hey, it's not our fault. It's Rockwell's fault. You know, They didn't update their procedures, and they're the ones that didn't have all the the emergency facilities ready and everything. So he said after two years of negotiation, they finally reached a settlement just to sort of close the books. Sue Wolfer told me that they didn't even want to sue. They kept waiting for something, anything from NASA and or Rockwell, and nothing was ever forthcoming, and, and Bill couldn't work anymore. Uh, he, they, both families had all of these medical expenses, neither husband able to work, and she said, Sue Wolfer, that they were on the verge of losing their home, and so they finally went to an attorney and said, you know, we need to settle, and we need to settle soon just so we can keep our home. So they ended up settling, and the attorneys told me, could they probably have gotten more? You know, probably so, but it would have just extended this agony even further. Yeah. So, but we want to remember particularly Nick Mullen here. I mean, he pulled out, he, billed off, he pulled Bill Walford out, um, possibly uh, also pulled Jimmy Harper away from danger. He, he was really a hero in this, as well as a victim. Absolutely. Um, so this is a, even though it's a lesser known story in the American space program, it hasn't really been forgotten it, uh, within you know the people like you who were there uh, or who were who were within the program at the time. Where do you think this stands now? Where ought it to stand in the history of space exploration? I think it's a very important story that needs to be better remembered. There have been a few articles small articles written over the, uh, particularly back at the time, NASA recently did a couple of years ago a a four-page investigation, or looking back at the accident and what happened, just as part of their safety program. But in all of these cases, the victims are simply names in a series of incidents. And it's an accident that, even though I wasn't directly involved, I was working on the program at the time, and it's always kind of haunted me. And I felt like it was a story that needed to be told, and investigating the story I discovered just how deep a tragedy this really is. And I want to thank you, Tony, and Bain Books for giving me the opportunity to bring this story to light. And I want to pass on the thanks of the families I talked to. I was a little reluctant about talking to people about these these tragedies 30 years later, but they were thrilled to have the opportunity for the part that their, their husbands played in the space program to be brought to light. And I think it's important that as we go forward in space exploration, we recognize that that this isn't this dangerous for the guys who who ride the fire. It's dangerous for all of the people who work to make their jobs possible. And those people don't, should not be forgotten, and they should be taken care of when these things happen. Well, we want to thank you for such an amazing article. The article is called Columbia's First Victims. It can be found on the front page of the Bain.com website during September and until uh, October 15th. Uh, 2013. After that, you can read it in 
The Bain Free Nonfiction Anthology for 2013 at com. That's downloadable at any time. We want to thank Terry Burleson, reporter, former mission control specialist, for being with us today. Thank you so much for putting together such a detailed, uh, upsetting, thought-provoking, and moving article on this piece of space exploration history. Thanks so much, Terry. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star empire of Manticore has reached a truce with a long-standing menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire, in an area called the Verge, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the Verge, often with the use of brutal tactics and by installing puppet dictators. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid. Some have received this aid in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the Star Empire. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason Alignment, a nasty cabal of eugenic supremacists, who wish to see the Salarian League and the Star Empire at war. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess of Gold Peak, commands the Manticoran Naval Forces in the Talbot Quadrant, a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the border of the Verge. Although unaware of the Mason plot, Admiral Goldpeak does sympathize with the rebels. Yet she wants to be careful that whatever help she supplies is in a time and place of her own choosing, not that of her enemies. Here is part 27 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. In that case, if you don't mind, Commissioner, I've got a couple of points I'd like us to consider. Usel said harshly. Oh? Barocchio looked at her. What would those be, Brigadier? Miss Zaitis's dispatches from Mobius. Usel's voice was flat, and Verrocchio was conscious of a distinct sinking sensation. I realize President Lombroso is concerned about the situation, he said. But let's be honest, Francisca. He's always concerned about the situation. I'm aware of that, sir. Usel's tone carried a hint of frost, but the situations changed significantly, given the sophistication of the weapons used against the presidential guard this time around. Nobody cooked those up in some backwoods workshop, sir, and nobody bought them for hunting or even self-defense, either. Someone damned well sent them in from the outside, specifically to be used exactly the way they were used. I think we want to be a little careful about leaping to conclusions about those weapons reports, Brigadier, Junyan Hongbo said coolly. He and Yusel saw eye to eye on very few subjects, and especially not on her theory that there was no such thing as excessive force. In her view, there was no problem she couldn't solve by killing enough people, and the two of them seldom found themselves on the same side of any policy debate. Lombroso, Yardley, and Matyas are scarcely disinterested observers, the vice-commissioner added. 
and they've been trying for years to get an official OFS presence to back up the local regime. Hiroki felt himself nodding slowly in agreement. Given the way Sveen Lombroso had become steadily more hated by the Mobius system citizens virtually from the first day he'd taken power, it wasn't surprising he saw clearly visible OFS backing for his regime as the only way to stave off disaster. A smarter and less brutal president might have reflected that inviting frontier security in was like a farmer inviting a fox to a slumber party in his henhouse, but Lombroso was obviously feeling the strain. Yes, I'm aware of that too, Mr. Vice Commissioner, Usil said. I'd just like to point out, though, that according to Zytus's messages, President Lombroso definitely isn't fabricating this. It really happened. He's got a lot of civilian casualties, and the terrorists opposed to his administration are clearly better organized and one hell of a lot better armed than they've ever been before. There are signs Mobius isn't the only place this is happening, too. In fact, he's scarcely the only local reporting evidence of Manti involvement in providing both weapons and financial support. Barocchio managed not to roll his eyes. It wasn't easy, given how persistently Usul, despite her firm belief that Manticore wouldn't dare confront the League openly, seemed to be finding Manti plots under her bed every night. Apparently, she had no problem at all with believing Manticore would resort to any clandestine means of opposing OFS it could come up with, regardless of the risk of Solarian retaliation, which struck him as more than a bit inconsistent. Maybe she'd spent so long arranging deniable operations of her own that she was simply programmed to assume everyone else thought the same way she did? Now, that was a frightening concept. At the same time, however, she had a point about Lombroso's reports. I realize we're all under a lot of strain, Hongbo said, and I fully agree that we need to be more safe than sorry about the Mantis, but I also think it would be a mistake to rely too heavily on those reports, Brigadier. Usul glowered at him, and he shrugged. The unrest in Mobius started well before Admiral Bing's deployment, and I fail to see any reason for the Star Empire to have invested in the considerable effort and expense to foment general unrest in our vicinity before they even knew he was coming. Someone's providing modern weapons, and not just to Lombroso, Usul said stubbornly. If it's happening on anything like the scale our reports indicate, that same someone is obviously willing to invest the effort and expense you've just mentioned. And at the moment... I don't see anyone with a better reason than the Mantis to be doing that. Her gray eyes challenged him coldly across the conference table, but he didn't back down. Neither do I, he said. Which, I'm afraid, suggests to me that the reports you're referring to are exaggerated. Understandably, I'm sure. He added, not trying to sound any more sincere than she or Thurgood had, given all the unrest that's been swirling around since the Battle of Monica, but nonetheless exaggerated. And while I've just agreed it's better to be safe than sorry, our resources, as Commodore Thurgood has just pointed out, are limited. I don't think it would be wise to waste them responding to threats which may not even be real. I'm inclined to agree, Junyon, Verrocchio said quickly, before Usul could fire back. I'd like to stay focused on the specific case of Mobius at this point, though. Brigadier? Usul sat in brief, fulminating silence, 
then inhaled deeply. It's possible President Lombroso is seeing Manticoran involvement when there isn't any, she conceded, although her tone made it obvious she thought nothing of the sort. Nonetheless, it's clear his problems are much more serious than our earlier assessments suggested, and I think it's equally clear he's losing whatever nerve he may once have had. That's not a recipe for success. So I think we have to decide whether we're going to support him or the time's come to go ahead and supplant him. And the vice commissioner and the commodore are right that we have limited resources. We can't afford to waste them, and frankly, providing a garrison to maintain direct control on a long-term basis would cut deeply into my available strength. Barocchio winced. One thing of which no one could ever accuse Francisca Usel was subtlety. Still, she had a point. Lombroso was a lot less valuable to frontier security than he might think he was. In fact, under normal circumstances, as Usel had just implied, Verrocchio would have been simply biding his time until things got bad enough to provide OFS with an unassailable case for, regretfully, of course, moving in to restore public order and safety in the process of which Mobius would just happen to find itself an official protectorate and President Lombroso would just happen to find himself unemployed. Circumstances weren't normal, however, and the last thing he needed was to have Mobius melt down right on his doorstep. Manti meddling in the Mobius system or not, the restiveness of Lombroso's opposition undoubtedly owed a lot to what had already happened in Talbot. The example of a whole cluster of worlds seeking and receiving admission into the Star Empire hadn't been lost on any of the nominally independent planets in the vicinity. They were bound to see that as a better deal than being systematically sucked dry by one transstellar or another, or engulfed by frontier security, at any rate, and he never doubted that his ultimate superiors back in old Chicago would recognize that as well as he did— and they wouldn't thank him for allowing the dyke of OFS's prestige and power to spring any fresh leaks, either. Which didn't even consider the way Trifecta Corporation and its economic allies would react if he let anything like a genuine Mobian regime topple Lombroso. It might take years for Trifecta to get its hooks properly into Lombroso's successor, and they'd undoubtedly raise hell about it the entire time. Should I take it you concur with Brigadier Usel's reading of the situation, Colonel? The commissioner inquired, looking at Colonel Armand Wang, Usel's equivalent of Captain Merriman. Wang was a good forty centimeters taller than Usel, with dark hair, dark eyes, and a high-arched nose. He was also, in Verrocchio's opinion, rather less of a blunt object. Now he glanced at Usel from the corner of one eye, then shrugged. It's... Possible. He stressed the adverb ever so slightly. President Lombroso and General Yardley are overreacting. As you say, sir, they've insisted the sky was falling in the past, but we've looked at their reports, especially the most recent ones from General Matias and at Miss Zydus's messages carefully. We've also sent back a request for additional information from Trifecta Corporation sources in the system, although it's going to be a while before we hear from them in reply. He shrugged. 
on the basis of all information currently available to us, there's no question but that at least some modern weapons have found their way to President Lombroso's opposition. That's obvious, however they got there, and even if the local authorities are overreacting, this isn't the time to let something like this get out of hand. Well, Perucchio really hadn't expected him to contradict Usul. The commissioner looked at Hongbo, who also shrugged, which was a lot of help, Perucchio reflected sourly. The commissioner suppressed a temptation to gnaw on a fingernail. Anything he dispatched to Mobius would be unavailable if something decided to blow up on one of the Madras sector's planets, and the excuse that he'd been trying to prevent a Mobius meltdown was unlikely to appease critics in Old Chicago— if the troops he needed to prevent his own sector from burning to the ground were elsewhere at the critical moment. But if he let Mobius turn into another Talbot quadrant? All right, he sighed. I see your point, Francisca, and yours, Colonel Wang. And all things considered, I don't think this is the time for us to be supplanting any more local regimes. So having said that, what would you recommend? I think we don't have any choice but to meet Sidus's request for boots on the ground. Usil smiled unpleasantly. The locals may be willing to come out into the open against Lombroso's presidential guard, but I doubt they'll be so eager against an intervention battalion or two. Is that strong a response really necessary, Brigadier? Hongbo asked distastefully. We don't have a lot of options here, Mr. Vice Commissioner, Usel pointed out testily. Anybody I send to Mobius will be out of my order of battle in sector for months. So, if we're going to send troops at all, we have to send enough of them, and with clear enough rules of engagement, to break these terrorists' backs quickly. Get in, kick the shit out of them, turn the situation back over to Lombroso, Maybe with a gendarmerie advisor or two, and a company or so of troops for support, and then get the rest of our people back here. Do it hard and fast, and we may just be able to complete the entire operation before anyone here in the Madras sector even realizes we've diverted any of our strength elsewhere. Something to be said for that, Mr. Commissioner. Thurgood clearly didn't enjoy saying that, but his expression was unflinching when Verrocchio looked at him. Whether it's a good idea to intervene at all is outside my area of competence, sir, the frontier fleet officer said. I'm no expert at controlling insurrections on the ground, but if the decisions that we ought to intervene in Mobius, I'm in favor of getting in and getting out as quickly as possible. His lips tightened in distaste. If we're sending in troops on the ground, I'll need to come up with at least a couple of destroyers to control space around the planet, if for no other reason than to make sure no more shipments of modern weapons get through to the other side while we've got troops down there. That means that in addition to any troop strength Brigadier Usul has to divert, I'm going to have to divert naval strength as well. And frankly... The longer any of my ships are away, the more likely it is that something's going to get past us here at home. It was obvious that, outside his area of competence or not, Thurgood was opposed to the entire notion. 
That didn't invalidate his points, unfortunately. Parochio closed his eyes for a moment, thinking, then sighed. I want an estimate of the troop strength you're proposing to commit, Francisca, he said. And I want to see your operations plan before I make any hard decisions. Having said that, I think you're probably right and we need to get support in there for Lombroso before bad turns to worse. Commodore, he turned back to Thurgood. As soon as the brigadier and I have determined exactly how many troops we're committing, I'm going to need your best numbers on transport requirements and what kind of warship support you expect to be necessary. He smiled bleakly. If we're going to do this, let's at least try to get it right. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 27, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Hank Davis, Laura Haywood, Corey, Christopher Chifani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Most excellent thanks to aerospace journalist Terry Burleson for reminding us of the story of the 1981 Columbia launch pad accident. And remember to check out the article itself at Bain.com. It's really, really detailed and, and good. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 